0: Pennsylvania has a long tradition of manufacturing centers. They called them ironworks, places where people came together to build things. This podcast is about building and sustaining our democracy. We call it Democracy Works.
1: From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman and I'm Chris Beam.
2: I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to the season one finale of Democracy Works. Yeah, Yeah, we made it, guys. <laughs> uh, we're gonna close out our first season today with our Democracy Summer Reading List. If you've been in a bookstore recently or in the library, you've probably seen that there are, um, you know, at least a, a dozen if not more books that are either have democracy in the title or relate to democracy more broadly. Um, so, we're, we read all these books, basically, so you don't have to, <laughs> um, if, you, uh, if you, we're going to try to talk about the main arguments um, that each book makes, and help you kind of decide, um, you know, if you only have time to read one or two, um, which ones might be best. So. Mm-hmm. We will post um, all of the the books and the the titles and how to find them in the show notes. So if there's anything that catches your eye, you can support these authors and uh, get their books.
1: And we know the Democracy Works audience is a book reading audience, right?
2: Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Uh, I guess to, to go along with that, if you have any fiction recommendations for all of us, we have spent a lot of time <laughs> reading books about democracy lately, so yes, these um, are send books, those in as well.
0: These are books we're not going to read on the beach. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Actually, I want to say for the record that um, both Michael and I thought this was a terrible idea <laughs> because it was such a daunting list of books, But um, but as usual... Um, we just do what Jenna tells us to do and that's why and here we are.
2: So let's dive in, shall we? Um, we're going to start off, I think, with a, with a couple of books that um, talk a little bit about um, how we got here, right? So.
1: Well, yeah, these are the, the books we chose to start with. We have three books to start with that all take what, what we might think of as a macro view. So they take a, a long-term view about the state of democracy and it's the state of
0: democracy not only in the United States but with throughout the western world right that's right and and the the art the thing one of the things that unites all these books is the idea that um whatever trends we are now witnessing uh, have a long term to them and they're not limited to simply america so we have to go back and look at them historically and also um how they're manifested around the world
2: all right, so we are going to um, start off with a book that uh, is near and dear to all of our hearts. We've actually interviewed one of the authors on this podcast in episode five. It is How Democracies Die by Daniel Ziblatt and Stephen Levitsky. And this book, I think... Um, as as you can hear Daniel say, um, really takes a, a pretty systematic look um, comparing what's happening in the U.S. with um, countries around the world based on their experience as comparative politics scholars. Right.
1: Both authors are uh, political scientists, but they, uh, but as a political scientist, I feel like I can say this: they write exceptionally well. Mm-hmm. And this is a book that's gotten quite a bit of attention, and in fact was on the New York Times bestseller list for for quite a while. Might still. 'd still be there uh, From my perspective what they do so well is focus on the important role that norms play mm. in a democracy and the decline of those norms.
0: You know what I um, continue to find so useful about that book is the, the you know this is strives to lay out some, um, common, if not quite objective features that are associated with the decline from democracy into and authoritarianism. And, and, you know, neither one of these people are Americanist. One, uh, one is uh, Latin American, one studies Europe. And, and so you get to this point where, um, all right, this is what normally happens, and let's look now at what's happening in America. Right, and they also make
1: the point, uh, drawing both on historical examples in the U.S. and okay. on other examples around the world, that democracies die through democracy.
2: Mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm.
1: Essentially, we elect leaders with authoritarian tendencies, and then once they're in office, they violate norms, they develop rules that are anti-democratic in their nature. Um, and, and I think this is a really valuable contribution they're right. making. And along the lines of what you were talking about, Chris, they also offer us a sort of a guide. Like, when do you, essentially, when do you know you've elected an authoritarian?
2: <laughs> yeah, they have a, a four-step litmus test, yes. I believe mm-hmm, it is. Mm-hmm. And um, the other thing that, that they talk about and that we talked with with Daniel about was this notion that democracy is grinding work. Um, I, <laughs> yeah, I use right. that that a lot in kind of describing various things. But they they try to lay out a, a path forward, which, which I think a lot of these books do when we're yeah I, I, to. I think
0: there is a kind of common theme that uh, um, wrecking things is easy building things is hard right so we have um, the interview with Daniel on a podcast so I don't you know we encourage you to go back and li- listen to that because it's a it's it's one it's a good one and yeah. and he's really a smart guy and and it uh, gives you much more detail about right. this book. Right. Right. Skip the book, walk, listen to the podcast. Exactly, exactly. <laughs>
2: um, so let's transition into uh, Yasha Monk, who wrote a book called "The People Versus Democracy."
1: Right, and Monk too has uh, gotten a lot of attention over the past uh, number of months, uh, in particular for a survey that. Uh, or the results of a survey that he and his colleague put out that makes up a, a major part of the book, showing that young people uh, have a weakening support for democratic institutions. Uh, I think that fits into the larger theme of the book, Chris, which maybe you want to introduce or Jenna. But but that's where uh, that's where Monk got a lot of uh, attention recently. Yeah,
0: it, it is a it is. I remember reading that for the first time and just being. Uh, Genuinely shocked by I, these numbers. I think we posted it on our yeah, Facebook right, page, right? Right. And yeah. I actually wrote a piece uh, for the conversation that that was um, got a lot more attention than anything else I've ever written, <laughs> <laughs> and because it was because it was referencing these things that uh, uh, that are really dramatic in terms are, of are, just, are the, the. Are you disappointed we're not discussing your book? Today? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Um, although, if you you know, anyway. Uh, so, <laughs> so Monk's book really
2: his he kind of lays out the case that liberalism and democracy are coming apart. And so what that leaves us with illiberal democracy on on one side and kind of unchecked liberal institu- or uh, liberal institutions on the other. Yeah,
1: and and I think that's a really important distinction that this book makes and that is that when you're talking about liberal democracies you're talking about liberalism small L liberalism and democracy. And and they do a really nice he does a really nice job in this book of uh, decomposing those two elements emphasizing that liberalism is about rights and about rule of law and about protection of minorities and minority rights and that democracy is essentially about responsiveness that what the people want is put into
0: and policy and popular sovereignty right yeah. and so you know so what he talks about is this kind of, the idea that there's such a thing as illiberal democracy and undemocratic liberalism and the the first one this illiberal democracy is is i think um, the the stronger of the two pairings i mean it, it is this is not it's very similar to what or, orban um used to describe um what what he wanted to achieve in hungary the idea that now we we want um democracy to to rule and if that means um that some rights are don't have the same status that they used to or that there's that some people have a different um Standing in the community versus other people—that's okay.
1: Right. He's making the point that this is an important element element of populism throughout the Western right. world. Uh, that it emphasizes right the people's rule. That's essentially what populism is is about. But it de-emphasizes uh, minority rights, uh, individual. Protections of of all kinds, which
0: is why rights exist. Because you know, I mean, going back to Tocqueville and the tyranny of the majority. If you um, don't have those rights. Odds are very good that the majority is going to oppress the minority.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, one thing I think he does a nice job of kind of laying out is that the American system was developed with much more of an emphasis on the uh, liberalism than on the democracy. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, it is a very undemocratic constitution, and we're seeing a lot of that today. Uh, more so maybe than at other times but it but it was a constitution that was and madison who was very vocal about this you know that was concerned about majority rights that wanted to protect protect minorities and I, I think that's a real that's a real strength of this book although you know i have to say i had a little trouble discerning even going back over it a couple of times what exactly is he arguing is happening in the united states today is it a th- are we facing threats to democracy or are we, we we facing threats to liberalism? I think he would say
0: both. both. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I um, but, you know, as I alluded to, I don't think the argument that uh, we are looking at um, undemocratic liberalism is as strong. I mean, he points to things going on in the European Union where I think he might have a case. But in terms of, you know, that kind of bureaucratic. Work bureaucratic regulations that come out. You know the idea that these are not responsive to politics. I just I don't find that persuasive. I I
1: agree. I I, I mean, there 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 is an argument to be made there that. You know, many decisions are made by experts and outside of the democratic process. I mean, That—that's the point right. he's trying to make. But yes. that, that hardly strikes me as the crisis in American right politics right. right now.
2: Yeah. So, folks will have to read the book and then let us know what you think. Which <laughs> which side are you coming fair down enough, on? Fair enough.
1: Also, a very nicely written book. Yeah. I think all the books we're yeah. reviewing yeah, today I I mean, yeah. really were, and enjoyed. and not
0: that kind of stuffy academic prose. It's there. I mean, hey, these people. Hey, are, hey. 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 <laughs> So the only other thing I want to mention about Monk is that is is again something that I see repeatedly with these books, and that is that, uh, you know, you have analysis and then prescription, and the analysis is usually very strong, and the prescriptions are comparatively pretty weak and not as compelling. Yeah, well, they're, <laughs> yeah,
1: they're kind of afterthoughts in some ways. Yeah, I, I mean, then maybe that's a little bit strong to say, but uh, you know, they all want to end on a kind of upbeat. Right. Right. right.
2: Yeah, and that's that's an interesting question of how much of that is it is it realistic of us as readers to expect them to have these grand solutions to these problems? I, I, I think know. that's
0: fair. Um, the other thing is that you know people present these arg- these uh, prescriptions as um, you know universal or bipartisan, and then once they get to specifics, you find out they're not. They're they're very you know partisan in in their, um, you know, what it is they're calling for. Or if, if they were to become a reality, it would require a partisan fight. Right. Yes.
2: So speaking of, of not a lot of um, uh, you know, hopeful solutions in a book, let's talk about The uh, Retreat of, of Western Liberalism by Edward Luce. Yes. Yeah, so, this
0: one you probably don't want to take. Yeah, to so the this beast. one, yeah. I just
2: have to say, I do not recommend reading this book while listening to Tom Waits. That is not a good idea by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah,
1: this is, this is a book the New York Times de- described as insightful and
0: harrowing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as winter follows autumn. That's, that's a phrase that he uses a couple times. And if that doesn't um, give you pause, I don't know what will. There is just a sense of dread, literally, in this book. Well, he's
1: arguing that Western democracy is close to collapse. Right, right. And, and again, he's looking, as with all the books in this section, he's looking not just at the American case, uh, but at Western democracies right, more generally. Right. Yeah.
0: I think it's worth saying um, this book is is different – in a way from at least the two that we just talked about it's it is more like an extended essay than it is an argument. Um, He he picks up things, he talks about them, then puts them down. it's, so it's kind of got this episodic character. Yeah, he's but, got this
1: fantasy war with China yeah, that he yeah, brings yeah, up yeah, in there. Yeah.
0: That, mm-hmm. But it is—he's an extremely good writer, and you know, and it is compelling read. It's just—it's um, just a little scary. Yeah. yeah,
2: and this this is the only one that I think talks about kind of the the ascension of China at the same time that the West is is in decline. And as you know, China's economy and its kind of political presence becomes more powerful, it's also bringing other countries along with it, like India, Malaysia, several others he mentioned. Yeah, I think so. that's
0: right. Right. I mean, I think what you have here is not it's not so much that uh, China is ascendant. It's that the the decline and um, step back of Western liberalism has created a vacuum and that China is perfectly able to to fill that void. And and by so doing, they make ascendant this model of authoritarianism.
1: Well, right. And and there's a little bit more to it in that I think. I, I think he sees the decline of Western democracy as rooted in the slowdown of economic growth.
0: That's that's a really important yeah, point. And, Say and so, more about that. So he wants to
1: make the argument that it's economic growth that essentially holds liberal democracies together. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, uh, and that in, in, a, in, a, in times of declining or, or slower growth... Uh, and, and less uh, upward mobility. Right. Uh, that people seek out scapegoats, and that these scapegoats are often uh, met through populist appeals, right. in, toward uh, against immigrants or or others. Mm-hmm. And and I and I, th- I think why he focuses so much on China, on India to some extent mm-hmm. as well as I think Jenna was saying, because these are countries that
0: are experiencing rapid e- rapid economic right. growth at 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 our expense, but but we're not. I don't, well, yeah. he does say. And this is not so much an economic question as a, as a, a result of economics, as a result of, of politics. But he says that um, in America, it's, it's, it's easier for somebody to move up in, t- in terms of economic classes in Britain than it is in the United States. And, and you know, given the foundation of both countries, you just have to stop and, and just, you know, that's a, that's a mind-blowing thing to say. Yeah. Yeah, uh, he also said many
1: of the tools of modern life are increasingly priced beyond most mm-hmm. most people's reach. So it's all rooted in this sense of economic dislocation, slowdown, mm-hmm. disappointment mm-hmm. Uh, that that he feels really puts these Western democracies as a in total right. At, at, uh, right at risk.
2: And um, he perhaps most explicitly says something that I think is a theme throughout throughout a lot of these books is that in order to really fix what's wrong with democracy, you have to first fix inequality, both um, economic inequality and racial inequality. Yeah. I think Ziblatt and Levitsky say that. Monk talks about that mm-hmm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. So.
1: Yes. Yeah. All the books kind of point to that. And maybe this comes the closest to really trying to make the argument that I, I would agree needs to be made, which is that you know there are serious social and political implications to this extended run of increasing inequality. Right, right.
2: So I think that uh, Michael, you mentioned before the idea that um, as as a lot of this this inequality uh, it increases, people often look to scapegoats, and, and some of that has come through the the form of, of populism. I think we have two books that um, kind of delve into that uh, more specifically. Right,
1: that really directly directly speak to. West populism in Western democracies, but I think in particular one of them in particular really focuses on a, on American populism. So let's let's actually start with a book that that might strike some as a little bit sort of outside of of these others and that's Joshua Greens book The Devil's Bargain.
2: Yeah, so this um, I have in my notes that this is maybe the most beach worthy of any of the books on this list. Yeah, it's I agree uh, with that. you know pretty mm-hmm. well pretty kind of has you know tells a great story. There's a little bit of like behind the scenes palace intrigue about Bannon's you know time in the White House and his time on the campaign and you know that that kind of thing but you know he really lays out all of the pieces that made kind of set steve bannon up to really help donald trump get to to where he is now from his his military upbringing to his corporate experience to his work in in video games and developing subcultures that way and then kind of putting all that together into what would become breitbart and you know weaponizing the media and um, I think he's also, you know, responsible for some of the Hillary Clinton narrative that we continue to see. With-
1: well, I'd say more than that, yep. but yeah, I mean, this is so. This is a book about Steve Bannon. It's about Steve Bannon's role in the campaign, but it's also a intellectual biography of Steve Bannon. And uh, Steve Bannon has a worldview, and as Jenna was just saying. Uh, That worldview was developed through his experiences in the corporate world, through his experiences in the media world with Breitbart, and what I think you were just alluding to, his central role in what Hillary Clinton referred to as the great right-wing conspiracy against her. I mean, he was deeply enmeshed in the the anti-Hillary world.
2: yeah, he was um, part of the team that put the Clinton Cash book together. The Clinton right? Cash yeah. book, and
1: also the uh, the movie. Wasn't he also involved? Oh, in that's that, right. Uh, Citizens United mm-hmm. that created the Citizens United case. But 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 anyway, so so you know, this is a book that I think really drives home that Steve Bannon is is dark. And Steve Bannon has a dark worldview. It is a populist worldview. It is an anti-immigrant worldview. It's an anti-immigrant worldview throughout the Western world, not only in the United States. It's a worldview that sees uh, that really does see power and potential in just pure destruction.
2: Sure. Yeah. And I mean, even though, you know, he's he's obviously no longer in, in the White House, I think this is still an important book to read, an important story to, to kind of know about, because his influence is still very much felt, if if nothing else, through Breitbart. And, you know, I think that he's still definitely, even if he doesn't have the president's ear directly, he has the ears of a lot of people who, who advise President Trump. So yes. his influence is still very much there.
1: Yes. And I think it's the most consistent part of Trumpism, actually, which we'll talk about a little bit more with some of the later books, is this sort of... Uh, Is this this anti-immigrant enemies nature of populism much more so than I think economic populism, which has which as we'll talk about, kind of fallen a bit by the wayside. Uh, And and Bannon, you know, Bannon reads some some, reads fascists and Italian fascists have interested him. And I mean, this is a smart guy who's done a a ton of reading in his life and. has the money to be able to pull it all together? Yeah, from and,
2: Seinfeld, right? Of, of all things. Yes, largely. A yeah, a
1: lot of it's from Seinfeld, and also Goldman Sachs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, he this is a guy in a position to pull it all together, in a you know, with a powerful media voice and the ear of the president. Mm-hmm. So
0: I, I I didn't read this one. Yeah. but can and you why, just why would that be? Because <laughs> it was like ninth on my list. All right. <laughs> um, so here's my question. Um, can you articulate in a sentence or two what you understand to be his, his worldview, his objectives? Yeah, I think
1: it's very national. It, it, I don't know if I could quite do it in a sentence yeah. or two. It's very nationalistic. It's, it's rooted in the fact that countries have national identities that need to be protected, mm-hmm. uh, that need to be emphasized. Uh, and that need to be preserved against the intruders of all types.
2: Yeah, I think I mean to put it maybe most simply, his goal is to make America great again, uh-huh, <laughs> and uh-huh. everyone else be damned, you know.
1: And to make America American again. Right.
2: So, <laughs> and it's it, so well, I
1: should probably not say it quite that oh, way, yeah. but to, but to, but to make American, you know, to to keep America for Americans that are already there. Right. Little,
0: right. Right. Already here. So it, there's interesting. I mean, there's an interesting parallel with this idea then of complacency, right? That um, that you know we have these people who are just Not taking our birthright seriously and it sounds to me like that you know and for what I know about Bannon that that sounds like what obviously they have a completely different diagnosis right and and different objective but the idea that um, we have a birthright that we are not taking seriously and not properly defending is something that's similar yes yeah Mm -hmm. interesting yeah
2: and so kind of the other side of this, then, uh, is a book called The, the Great Revolts, um, written by a journalist named Selena Zito, who actually is is from Pittsburgh. And um, she kind of talked with in this book, I think, a lot of the people that um, we might presume read Breitbart or are kind of, you know, the the recipients of a lot of these messages that that Bannon and company are, are, are putting out there. And um, what she did is she interviewed... I don't know, at least a couple of dozen people, of, if not more, in five states that had all um, went to Barack Obama in um, 2012, but then it flipped and, and went to, to Trump in 2016. And she, you know, talked to these voters and kind of tried to figure out um, why that was. And, you know, I, I really like this book as, as a piece of journalism. Um, she says in there that, um, you know, a lot of times when you read about these these stories that are trying to get inside the minds of Trump voters, it's you know uh, a reporter from Brooklyn that they put on a plane and drop somewhere in rural Ohio or you know wherever, and trying to you know understand um, people that they're really not not very familiar with. But um, you know, Selena grew up in in Western Pennsylvania and really I think is able to um, kind of form a, a a sense of camaraderie with, with a lot of the people she talks to and that, that comes across in in her writing.
1: I think the strength of the book is that, you know, this is part of that genre we're seeing of interviewing Trump voters in a diner and looking at them like we're in a zoo or something. But <laughs> but I think it's much more sympathetic, uh, much more connected to these people, uh, much more understanding of uh, their economic plight. Right. Uh, much more appreciative of the communities out of which they come and the fact that these are communities that are hurting mm-hmm. hurting in all kinds of ways mm-hmm. uh, hurting from opioids, right. hurting from deindustrialization, hurting and hurting in lots of ways uh, and and she's sensitive to all that uh, and and I think it also picks up that and 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 this is uh, it, it picks up a couple of things that we see in the Trump presidency that really speak to his understanding of his supporters. And so, you know, they talk about trade a lot. I think it's the only issue they talk about. And yeah, it's not a particularly reasoned understanding of trade. And I think we're seeing right now that it's not a simple matter to, to try to deal with trade, but they talk about trade a good deal. Uh, they talk about this notion of apologizing a lot that they really saw... Right. Barack Obama as somebody who apologized, uh, apologized for the United States, apologized for the things we've done, and that so it, it helps you understand. I think uh, Donald Trump's kind of refusal to ever really apologize sure for anything. apologize for anything, and in fact, it kind of picks up on that whole the importance of the whole attitude of Donald Trump to their. Uh, uh, to their support of him. And I mean, it helps me understand a little better, perhaps only in that from uh, from reading about the, these people that, you know, he's probably right. He could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue. Uh, heck, we're watching right now. He could shoot Harley Davidson in Wisconsin <laughs> right. yeah. and it might not matter.
2: Yeah. yeah. The, the other thing that, that comes up uh, um, a lot is the, the Supreme Court, um, which would be, you know, people said that they, it, particularly um, religious conservatives, were willing to put, Trump's personal past aside so that with the, the hope that that he would nominate a justice to the Supreme Court who would um, kind of be sympathetic to, um, you know, overturning Roe v. Wade yeah. and some other cases. And, and it and looks like, like that's that maybe was
0: well the happened. right <laughs> decision yeah. as far as yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah I, and I, I do think the book tends to caricature the Democrats. Pretty unreasonably at times. It's multiculturalist militancy in describing the party, but but I think that's important also for emphasizing how you know, multiculturalism does threaten some people's identity. Uh, it does seem to suggest this idea that some people are being acknowledged uh, at their at what they see as their as as their expense.
0: Well, and and just the the demographics, right? I mean, Jenny Van Hook when she was on here. I mean, you know, the the America is different. You know, just in terms of the way it looks and the number of you know who's here, who counts as America is just different than it was 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Right. And and for for people who are you know, who who are used to being the hegemon, right, who are used to being in charge culturally as well as politically and economically. This is um, this is a problem. This is upsetting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It had me thinking of a couple of books that are out recently that we're not looking at today by uh, some old Obama staffers who are referring to uh, Obama's comments after Trump's election that he was 10 years. Maybe we were 10 years too soon that the the, the projection of all this multiculturalism, of this acknowledgement of gay marriage and et cetera, mm-hmm. I'd say that it was just many parts of the country weren't ready for it. And and reading this book, you do feel, like, yeah, mm-hmm. some parts well, of the country- Well, some,
0: some were, and some were you know absolutely uh, impatient. Should yeah. have thought it happened 10 years before. A- absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah, hence the conflict. Right. And,
1: and I think you can't look at this outside of the context of- their economic challenges mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and 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 the challenges that their that their communities are facing right.
2: so the the last thing i'll i'll say about this book is that it, it is interesting she interviews several people who talk about just how excited they were to to vote for donald trump it was their first time voting in 20 30 40 years and Um, I mean, say what you will about about Trump. It it does say something about democracy, right? Mm -hmm. That he in Mm -hmm. some way has energized people who had not voted in in a very long time, if ever.
1: Well, democracy is often about the bystanders and the efforts to bring the bystanders into the political fight. And uh, and there is uh, you know, that is an important aspect of the of the Trump campaign. Now, what I, what, one, one other point I want to make about this book that, that you had me thinking about is, you know, she talks a lot about Trump as a category builder or category changer. Uh, she sees him in uh, they see them in party changing, transformative terms. And I couldn't help but to think, you know, if not for seventy eight thousand votes in three states and maybe the Russians, uh, then we would be having an entirely different discussion. And so I'm I, I'm skeptical of the idea that the Trump campaign and Trump's victory signaled this major transformation in the party system. Uh, in fact, the idea that, you know, 90 percent of Republicans and 90 percent of Democrats voted for their – voted for the candidate of each party suggests pretty much the opposite – of that to me. It, it, it doesn't mean to say that changes that are going on now, going on through the courts won't have long-term implications. In fact, I think they will. Uh, but this tendency to over, there's a tendency to overplay the significance of the election. And, you know, really, if not for a few thousand votes here and there and in
0: a couple of places, we'd be having entirely different discussions. Right. Uh, That's certainly true. But it's also true that this election, you know, even if it had come out the other way, still manifests a a, a similarity to the brexit vote to to the rise of um, you know conservative right-wing candidates throughout Europe but but I, I, I agree
1: with all of that but had had Donald Trump lost then I do really believe that establishment Republicans would have just said this was an aberration this is not the Republican party this is not the direction we're going now does that mean that something else couldn't have built up Perhaps, but, Who you knows? know, third Who parties knows? and fourth parties have a very challenging time in the American political system for a lot of structural reasons, mm-hmm. uh, so I'm skeptical of that. Uh, so, they, so anyway. anyway. Well, so
2: given the fact yeah. that that Selena is in Pittsburgh, hopefully we'll maybe have her on as a guest in mm-hmm. season two, and that, we can talk to her all about this book.
1: So this is an invitation if she's yeah. listening. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay. A- absolutely.
2: Um, so from um, populism, I think we're going to move into Trumpism and Trumpism. Uh, Two books that look specifically at um, how Donald Trump kind of came out of this this populist movement. Um, the first is uh, Trumpocracy by David Frum, and I'll admit I did not read this one, so I'm looking to
1: yeah, I see you guys David. Shuffling your notes. I see David Frum as one of these uh, as one of these uh, really quite interesting conservative never Trumpers that who have been quite prolific. Uh, in Twitter and in their writings, over and he's the on
0: TV a lot. Too. And he's
1: on TV a lot. I'm thinking of uh, we'll get to his, but I'm thinking of Jennifer Rubin, of uh, Bill Kristol, of uh, Stephen Schmidt, of, uh, yeah, of of David Frum, and I mean the the list goes the, mm-hmm. the list goes on. Uh, there there's you know something definitely going on in sort of Republican intellectual circles. Uh, that are really concerned about what's going on with the uh, Trump administration. And uh, David Frum's book is, I think,
0: a pretty articulate statement of of what that is. Well, I I really found it to be... (laughs) useful as a um summation of all the stuff that has gone on i mean it is just so hard to kind of keep up with the news it just seems you know it doesn't seem it is the case that that there's some new um astonishing thing that is coming out of the out of the white house that if it had happened in any other administration would have been um uh, you know, a dramatic piece of news, and really have threatened the presidency. Now it's just another. It's just it's just Tuesday, right? <laughs> but but what Frum does is just lay it out, right? So so you forgot that you know he had Ivanka take his seat at a G seven meeting, and you and I forgot that that's right. He picked a fight with a Gold Star family. Yeah. I mean you know I mean these are things that just like. The mind reels. Right. You just this could not have happened.
1: Yeah, I think he. Yes. And he deals with it a little higher level of abstraction than that to to be saying that, you know, what I what what I sort of read him as saying is here's what characterizes politics under the Trump presidency. It's corrupt. Mm -hmm. And it is. Right, <laughs> you know, and we're we're we need to do a podcast on it. We're not really talking about it, but you know, one of the norms of American politics, and this comes up in one of the other books we're going to talk about shortly, uh, has to do with the idea that Demo- that presidents try assiduously to avoid conflicts of interest, the appearance of conflicts right. of interest. Well, Jimmy Carter had to sell his peanut farm, right. and it's in the Constitution, right? I mean, Bill, Barack Obama would not refinance his house. When interest rates drop because he was concerned about how that would look. But now the intertwining mm-hmm. of the Trump business operations, I mean, typified of, I mean, exemplified by the Trump Hotel right. and mar lago and where the Secret Service has to rent out golf carts to follow him around. And that money is going into his pocket and Ivanka's pocket. So he talks about it in terms of corruption. He talks about it in terms of nepotism, which is more a characteristic of authoritarian regimes. Uh, Than it is of democratic regimes, you know, from makes the point that, you know, on the one hand, many people, including people like himself, were like relieved that Mattis is there and Kelly is there Mm -hmm. and McMaster is there. And, you know, all these generals, Filtered throughout the government. But he also makes the point, which I think is really important, that military has a different way of making decisions. They're not democratic institutions. They are the opposite of democratic institutions. Right. They are the most top down you can get. They are can do, not how are we doing it or Mm -hmm. that there are procedures and ways that we have to do it so that he sees real threat and real concern uh, with the reliance on generals, while at the same time we seem to be very relieved because you know there probably fe- there there may not be any institution in American life right now that has the uh, confidence
0: of the American people the way
1: that the uh, military, military does. does. Yeah,
0: you know, I just I, I just want to um, say you know go back to the point about uh, corruption because uh, I because th- it really uh, I th- it's my my one takeaway is the uh, th- the fact that from connects. Um, corruption to uh, a, a breed of authoritarianism, and he he's talking to this this uh, person in Hungary, I think, and um, and he says that this person in Hungary said the benefit of controlling a modern state is less the power to persecute the innocent and more the power to protect the guilty. So so you have this kind of hmm. um, power that is designed to um to to get the people you want more money <laughs> and and if that's true that is um that is something that's worth uh highlighting yeah
2: so from kind of how we you know where things are and kind of how they got there i think the other book in this category one nation after Trump, um by virtue of its title, can is, is maybe a bit more forward looking. So this one is by e j. Dionne, Norm Orenstein, and Thomas Mann. That's right. Yeah. And yep.
1: this book in this book, they're going beyond their previous critiques of Congress, and they're looking at the Trump administration. And I think we're putting it with the from book because I think it too covers some of the same ground, right. And trying to understand what is different about this Trump presidency and about politics and this. In this period about democracy, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah,
0: I also, um, you know, I this is my complaint about this book uh, is is one that I've mentioned before is that you know they they start with this. All right, here's what we need to do, and it's a um, it's a list of progressive, uh, progressive policy Policy. proposals, none of which have a snowball's chance of hell getting through, right? And so I just it seems to me that. There needs to be... Well, not in the current. Right, not in the current. Right, and so that's the question, right? Well, so
2: I I guess let me ask, does it... Does that does that matter if their goal is to just get people energized and you know giving giving people something they can get behind regardless of how feasible it is that it'll actually happen? Is there is there value in that, do you think? Well
1: I think I think, yeah, a good question. I think actually the real value of the book is less in their this is what we need to do, in their description of what's going on. And they focus on I I think three three areas that Others have focused on, to maybe it's more, but I wrote down these these three mm-hmm. in particular. And that is, uh, you know, again, the notion of norms being broken, mm-hmm. what they refer to as bad behavior. Mm-hmm. They are, you know, there are certain norms to the presidency itself, and they just kind of go through norms that have been broken. And their, their concern of this is, you know, once you break them, it becomes a lot easier to break f- future norms. Right. And so this is an area to really be concerned because, you know, norms which are basically unwritten, uncodified, but ways in which we should behave. Uh, You know, once those start going, this takes us all the way back to Ziblatt at the beginning. Once those start to go, then they really were important to the functioning of democracy. And once they start to go, then they just go.
0: Yeah. It's this one that, that actually speaks to the Constitution as being, you know, basically a, a piece of paper. And without these norms kind of um, giving uh, substance and also giving kind of um, – what do I want to say, buffers around yeah. how these things operate. It just doesn't operate very smoothly.
2: Yeah, and we actually heard that from uh, Judd Matthews when we had him on to talk about constitutional right. yeah. crisis. Yep. He talked about constitutional Podcast episode and... number... 18. Uh, Good for you. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Uh, He also talks – they also talk in there about what they refer to as the phony populism of the administration. I think this is sort of an important point to make as we talked about populism earlier. But just that the economic agenda of the administration has had nothing to do with – some of the populism that was articulated in the campaign. The, you know, Trump does, I think, satisfy a lot of campaign promises, but they're almost always on the immigration or on what I would almost see as the white identity side mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. the populism, but not ever on the economic side of the populism. Uh, they, they, also, they also emphasize something I can't read. Uh, oh, uh, yes, also uh, they spend quite a bit of time talking about what they see as the crisis of truth Right. Uh, or a crisis of media in being able to uh, in, in able to be arbitrators of the mm-hmm, truth. Mm-hmm. That, that, that one of the norms, in fact, that they talk about with the presidency is that presidents at least acknowledge <laughs> the importance of a free press to an operating democracy. Even and if they don't
0: like it. Even if they yeah. don't
1: like it. Well, none of them like right, it. Right.
2: Right. So, yeah, I think that that brings us to the end of all, all the books on the list.
1: We're going to throw out just throw out one book that each of us mm-hmm. read that we think is interesting and relevant to what's going on, uh, but everybody else didn't, so we're not really going to talk about it, and I'll start. I read Russian Roulette by Michael Isakoff and David Korn, who are both... Uh, I think two of the country's finest investigative reporters. And Russian Roulette is just a is deep. Is that
0: Mother Jones? I, I know. Yes, David, David Corn is yeah. from Mother mm-hmm.
1: Jones, and Isakoff now is with Yahoo News, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, it was with Time before that. It was that, with I Time think. before that. You know, both have broken quite a few stories in their time. Uh, but here they just do a really deep dive into Russia's connections with the Trump family and the Trump organization. Mm-hmm. And some of the people around Donald Trump, and it, and it really makes you realize uh, the entangled, <laughs> the really deeply entangled nature of the Trump organization and Trump with uh, with the Russians. It all begins. The book begins at the uh, at the uh, Miss Universe contest back in I don't remember what year it was at this point, but it all starts back there. Uh, but it goes on in efforts to build Trump Hotel in Russia, but it also goes into into great detail. Some of this is out. Some of this was in the indictments from uh, from uh, Mueller, uh, but it goes you know deeply into the russian involvement in the election uh its ongoing involvement mm. in american politics and in other democracies and and i why i think this book is important is uh for a couple of reasons first of all in terms of the whole investigation that's going on i i, I think it i think it speaks to you know I think it speaks to why they never why the Trump people never Mm -hmm. wanted this to go into the Trump organization, because they're they've been deeply in deeply tied in with Russians for a very long time. I mean, has any Uh, other has any other administration ever had so many people who met with Russians and forgot about it? Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, But but also, I mean, more importantly, actually, I think it speaks to the fact that they're still at it and they're still going to be at it. And we have an election coming up where the president, as of today, actually, today, said basically, Russia says they weren't involved. I believe them. Mm-hmm. They weren't involved, even though our intelligence agencies say otherwise.
0: Every single one.
1: Every single one. But that's important because that presidential leadership is critical to taking the steps that are necessary to protect our next elections. And, you know, I just sort of... i. Russians made efforts. It's highlighted in this book. It's been out elsewhere to hack into, say, voting rolls and mm-hmm. things like that. Imagine, just imagine if in 2018 we find out after the election, especially if it it tips the house or it doesn't, right. uh, that the Russians were into the voting rolls in some important state. Uh, the legitimation crisis that that will develop and the way in which that legitimation crisis plays directly into the Russians' hands, which this book also helps you to understand. Uh, The book reads like an investigative, like what it is. It's an investigation. It's it's kind of grippy in places, a little overly detailed maybe in others. Uh, But, uh, you know, this one you could read at the beach, actually. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. And uh, I think that this episode will be out right around Trump's summit with Putin. So it'll be good timing that yes. way. Yeah. Um, so I read um, the a book called The Soul of America, The Battle for Our Better Angels by um, historian and presidential biographer John Meacham. Um, so unlike Meacham's uh, other books, or at least many of them, this is not about a particular person or president. Um, he really kind of makes the argument that um, a lot of the, the the watershed moments in democracy, in liberty, in civil rights um, don't happen in, in a vacuum. Um, it's often a two steps forward, one step back um, kind of kind of mentality. Um, so he talks about some of the things you might expect, um, like like Lincoln and um, you know, um, abolishing slavery. The, the The title of the book is actually taken from Lincoln. He talks about, um, the, the civil rights era and some of the struggles there. Um, but he also brings up um, examples that maybe are not as well known in history, or at least were not as well known to me anyway. Um, one that, that in particular stood out, um, he talked about um, uh, Woodrow Wilson and um, his struggle with um, a showing of the, the film Birth of a Nation in the White House and how Um, you know, Wilson had to kind of uh, reconcile his own feelings about the film, and he eventually came out and denounced it. But um, just some of the the struggles there and and how all presidents really kind of go through a lot of these struggles. And, you know, um, most, I think, have come out on what history would judge as as the right side. But um, he talks about in in a very kind of detailed um, but still in a, a good storytelling way. He, he lays some of these things out there. So um, John Meacham really does know all the history, at least all the, all the US history and he does a good job of, of weaving it together in, in narratives uh, in this book.
0: And I and I asked you, um, did you come away with uh, hope? And I think you just, you know, you said yeah. maybe a little. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah and it, I mean, it, it's just it,
2: kind of that, that, that historical context mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. you know, we have gone through these struggles before right. and come out the other side. As,
1: as opposed to some of these other books, which are looking at other Western democracies right. and what's gone on and saying, watch out. We can right, write, yeah. right, right, right.
0: Yeah. So that's a good counter argument. Um, so my um, my title is. Um, my title of my book is that I'm going to talk about is uh, "Monarchy of Fear" by uh, Martha Nussbaum, and this um, actually is not out yet as of the recording of this podcast. But uh, because we're such major players in in you know the fake news media world, um, we asked for uh, an advanced copy, and they sent it along. Um, Martha Nussbaum is uh, I, I actually met her at uh, University of Chicago. She's at the law school and also in the philosophy department there. And uh, um, she actually is a classicist, so most of her stuff is on, or at least, you know, originally was on uh, Aristotle and other um, ancient Greek philosophers. And um, in this book, she she's kind of responding to... The, the rise of Trump and where we are as a society and looking at it as um, from the eyes of a philosopher so so she um, she talks about I mean the monarchy of fear is is you know, really a lovely title and it gets at what she thinks we need to understand about this and so she she looks at infant development and how um, fear is is basic is inescapable in our lives and um, because of our dependency and because of our inability we are born inarticulate and all that but she says that um, fear is anti-democratic because it is you know so narcissistic it is so focused on me and mine and in that includes obviously your family but uh, democracy requires you as a as a state of mind to look at other people and 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 to consider the other person. So so the idea that fear is anti-democratic is interesting to me. She talks about anger, disgust, envy, and resentment as all being rooted ultimately in fear. So so I mean that's interesting when you you know because you see this um, you know the kind of uh, emotions that are playing out with Trump and and among his supporters and you say oh these are all rooted ultimately in fear it's a, it's a way of understanding it um so anyway she talks about um then what you, what do you do about that and the opposite of fear is she says hope and so she talks about little ways that you can that you can kind of try to restore hope and so she talks about art and religion and and critical thinking and um it's interesting there's a kind of vocational dimension to to the things that she brings up both you know on the part of the artist on the part of the person of faith and of the of the educator and and that's um a kind of um you know lovely way to think the only other thing i want to mention is that um she talks about dissents and um, there's a, it, she talks about this experiment that I've actually seen referenced el- elsewhere where um, if you put a person in the room who unbeknownst to that person, the rest of the room is going to say something false. Uh, it's very unlikely For the person who knows it to be false to say, wait a minute, that's not true. It's just the power of the group to overcome dissent. Um, So she says that dissent produces mental freedom from fear. So anytime someone says, wait a minute the emperor has no clothes that makes it possible for other people and so once i mean it reminded reminded me of things we've done with tommy smith and other people that just how much courage there is in dissent and how all of us um uh, you know, should be grateful to these people for 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 that kind of courage.
1: yeah, I, I agree how interesting that part of the book was. So I'm working my way through it too. I didn't get done with it yet, so it didn't meet our two people have to read a book. <laughs> have to read a book,, uh, but uh it it is first of all, beautifully written. Yes, mm-hmm. I mean, just gorgeously written in in places. Uh, and I, I had some of the same reaction on the dissent section. I also thought boy, it'd be fun to have her around to answer our questions about hope. Yeah. Worry, yeah. anger and uh Oh yeah, see what she says pride. to our mood of the nation. Yeah, that cool would questions. be interesting. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, and um, we could even throw it back all the way to our very first episode of this season with Abe We talked Conn? a lot That's about right. dissents right. there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we really did bring yeah, it full so circle. We, yeah, so, you know. <laughs> we what, know exactly what we're doing.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think the book these books highlight for us that, you know, we've interviewed some people that are speaking about, you know, talking about and working on important and interesting areas of democracy. These various people that pull it all together are referencing various right. <laughs> issues and uh, topics that we that we addressed and also that there are areas le- left for us to go into, so uh, excites me for season two.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I, I think we can can say that uh, we're going to kick off the the second season um, with a kind of timed with the one year anniversary of the Charlottesville riots. Um, we're going to talk with Brad Vivian, who is the director of the McCourtney Institute Center for Democratic Deliberation. He studies monuments, um, Confederate monuments, and public yeah, memory. memory. Yeah. So, um, even I think there's going to be an interesting discussion just in the year that passed from last summer to this summer, how people's perceptions have changed and mm-hmm. what we've forgotten or not forgotten. And so um, look for that coming in uh, mid-August. So um, before we wrap up, here just want to say um, thank you to everybody who has listened to our podcast and shared it, um, continue to, to do so. We like to keep the momentum going for season two. Um, thank you, uh, obviously, to, to Chris and Michael for coming along with this crazy idea, to Andy Grant and Mark Stitzer and the entire team here at WPSU, to all of our guests that we've had on uh, again for helping us uh, make this whole thing possible,
1: and and to the uh, to the generous uh, to the generous friends of the McCourtney Institute for Democracy because without them we would not have been able to do this.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Here, here. All right. Well, with that, um, we're going to head out on our summer break. So from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State, I'm Jenna Spadelli.
0: I'm Chris Beam. And I'm Michael Berkman.
2: Thanks for listening, everybody.